Hi everybody, welcome to Emmaus Way on a hot, hot, hot Sunday night. We're talking about the element of stone tonight, and there's a line in this song that talks about as the world is turned and turned upside down, um, it's talked about that not a stone will be left on stone. So I thought of this one as a neat way to start. My soul cries out with a joyful shout that the God of my heart is great. And my spirit sings of the wondrous things you bring to the ones who wait. You fixed your sight on your servant's plight and my weakness you did not spurn. So from east to west will your name be blessed could the world be about to I am small, my God, my all, work great things in me. And your mercy will last from the depths of the past, the ends of the age to be. You very name was the proud to the shame and to those who before you yearn. You will show your might with the strong to fight, for the world is about to turn. My heart shall sing. Tears through the dawn draws near, the world is about to turn. From the halls of power to the fortress tower, not a stone will be left on a stone. Let the king beware, for your justice tears every tyrant from his throne. The hungry poor shall weep no more for the food they can never will spread, every mouth be fed, for the world is about to turn. Thy heart shall sing of the day you bring, of the fires of your justice burn. I pray all tears with the dawn draws near, and the world is about to Deliver us from the conqueror's crushing grasp. The saving word that our forebears heard is the promise which holds us bound. Till the spear in a rock can be crushed by God who is turning the world around. Thy heart shall sing of the day you bring, let the fires of your justice burn. I believe all tears for the dawn trust Thanks so much, Mark. Um, and welcome to Emmaus Way. It's so good to see you all in the summer at Emmaus Way. I feel like July is a popular month to try to get away 
from the heat. I know we have a lot of MASA folks that went north, Maine, Michigan, kind of trying to get cooler, but it's great to see you. At Emmaus Way, we say we are a community that is captivated by the gospel and is trying to live into that captivation and see where God is at work in the world and what we are being invited into. So welcome. And at Emmaus Way, our kids always lead us in a community song. This summer, it has been significantly helped by Rhodey's wonderful singing. Um, So if Rhodey and the kids are going to lead us in our community song for us. All right, if y'all know it at this point, jump on in. We're going to sing it twice through. As the music at the banquet, as the wine before the meal, as the firelight in the night, so. much roadie and kids and enjoy you all are still in exodus yes the oldest kids 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 enjoy learning about exodus that's probably a smart age appropriate you know 10 commandments age appropriate call i think that's good um so welcome to mace way our summer series as you maybe got or if you've been around for a bit is dealing with alchemy so we're looking at physical elements in our world and what they reveal or say to us about god and ourselves um, living in this world. Hence, kind of our So Are You To Me community song, getting us to think about physical things that we interact with and how, rather than thinking of it as separate then or separate from God, um, how is it interconnected and how is that shaping us? Last week, we delved quite literally into dirt. um, And this week, Rhodey will be leading our dialogue on stone, which is really exciting. If you are new to Mayasway, I guess I should, I'm Molly, I'm one of the pastors here, Um, we are so glad you're here. But if you're new and want to know more information about us, kind of get on listservs and things, you can fill out a yellow card, which is on the table out front. If you, if that seems a little scary, you can also just take a green card, which has information about us, and you can reach out. I say the green card gives you the agency to reach out to us on your terms, and the yellow card is you being slightly brave and saying, hey you can email me, um, or I can receive an email in my inbox. So that is for you if you are new to the community. We have one, I know one announcement by Emily McLean about our move coming up, so. Yeah, sometimes I feel like the people who are new to the community get all the stuff on that table out there. If you are not new to the community, (laughs) or if you are, and you're just proactive, there's a form out there about helping us with our upcoming move. So if you are interested in volunteering in a variety of ways to help with the move, this is a form where we will email you uh, if you check some boxes. Uh, 
And that'd be great. So there's a couple of things on here um, that you could do before we move. We need to pack up this place that we're in now. We need to do some cleaning and some projects over at Calvary where we're moving to. We'll probably have a lot more of those projects to do after we've been in the space for a while. Uh, but there's a couple like improvements that we think would make a big difference before we go now. Um, and then there's a bunch of stuff to do on the day we actually move. Loading a truck, providing food, maybe doing childcare for people who are doing those things that you don't want to do um, or cannot do. So yeah, please take one of these forms, fill them out, um, be aware that we're moving and that we'll have some changes in the aesthetics of our space and uh, that that will continue to change over time. Yeah, thanks so much. And so we are moving to Calvary United Methodist Church. Our move date is Saturday, August 19th. So our last Sunday in reality will be August 13th. And our first Sunday in Calvary will be August 20th. Calvary's remarkable congregation. Um, they were the first reconciling congregation in the North Carolina Conference at the United Methodist early, late 90s, early 2000s. Looking at my Methodist fellow pastor to make sure I got that correct. Um, so they're open and affirming, um, open and affirming congregation. They rent to another congregation, Unfailing Love, as well as an LGBTQ youth group. It's kind of the best way to describe it, um, Inside Out, which is remarkable, doing really, really good work in our community. And like I said last week, um, I met with the newly appointed pastor there at Calvary, Chris um, Agaranos, and after that conversation. Um, just continue to be excited about the possibilities and what this means for our church and how really Calvary still locates us in downtown Durham um, and is meeting our needs um, in this stage of Emmaus Way's life. Um, but starting kind of next week until from the 30th through the 20th, come to Emmaus Way, we're going to be talking a lot about space. What does that mean for us um, these next few Sundays? Um, so yeah, that's space. If you have any questions about space, the move, August 19th, helping with that, reach out to Emily, myself, um, Lara Wooten and Ben Haas are also on the space team. Um, but yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. And we need help. So we cannot do this alone. Um, yeah, are there other announcements? I feel like it's kind of the middle of the summer, so not as much is going on, besides everyone trying to stay cool. Okay, I think that that is all. So, Mark, will you come lead us in our songs of prep? Mark and Lydia. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I have Lydia Kenton with me tonight. Thank you, Lydia. Love singing with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So, we haven't gotten to our song of confession yet. That's a long way off, but I still need to confess that, like, this heat is killing me, man. Like, I... I'm having like violent thoughts toward, I don't even know towards who or what. I'm just, I'm angry that it's this hot. I was thinking about uh, these songs, uh, thinking about rock, stone, all these things. And we always think about rock or stone being really hard, um, being inflexible, um, all kinds of words I imagine that will pop up tonight as we think about it. But, but I sort of thought, um, when I was thinking about songs, I, I thought, of a different kind of rock, I thought about chalk, uh, which is a, obviously a very soft rock, a very brittle rock, but it can do very beautiful things in the hands of the right person um, and with the right colors added to it. Uh, so this is a song by Buddy and Julie Miller. It's kind of a sadder song, but it's talking about um, 
It's talking about sort of the nature of things being transient and that not all things are always solid at all times. So, beautiful song, Chalk.
Nelson that Rhodey sort of pushed my way and thought, man, this is a great tune. So thanks, Rhodey, for mentioning this one. Sister, 
so much, Lydia and Mark, for those songs of preparation as we begin um, to turn our evening toward a dialogue around stone and what that means in our lives. I did forget two announcements that both Tim and Ben, in their absence, asked me to make. Good job. Um, one, Tim wanted everyone to know, pub group on Thursday night, we've been hearing from people in the community their stories. Um, and this Thursday night, Melina Smith will be sharing at pub group 815 at the Fed Um, And Melina is actually headed to D.C. um, in just a few weeks for a year-long academic program. So this would be a great time to hear more of Melina's story and how that's intersected at Emmaus Way um, and to buy her a pint before she heads to D.C. That's Thursday, 8.15 at the Fed. Um, And Ben wanted me to invite everyone. The fourth Thursday of every month, Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham hosts a community luncheon Um, It's donation-based. It's at 12 o'clock from 12 to 1 at Shepherd's House UMC, and it is happening this Thursday. I try to go every month. Kids are welcome. Anyone and everyone is welcome. It's a really great time um, to meet different folks in the city and to hear about what's going on in Durham around violence um, and how we are trying to think about um, combating violence from all different sides. So I would encourage you, 12 to 1, if you have a lunch hour, come to Shepherd's House UMC for the Religious Coalition luncheon this Thursday. Now we are going to pass the peace. At Emmaus Way, we pass the peace, and it's a bit rowdy. Stand up, greet one another, say hello perhaps to someone you don't know, um, grab some coffee, water, some snacks, and Rody will call us back together. Um, you should definitely go. We actually have like a little Winston-Salem family contingent, James and I do, today. Neither of them knew that they were coming, but um, you should go meet them. You can ask you can blame them for how James and I are. Yeah, so she had to come. She came to my church. So Kelly, um, whenever I talk about Green Street United Methodist Church, that was so formative. Kelly is the pastor and my beloved mentor. So great to have you. Thank you, Mark and Lydia, for doing the Ingrid Michelson song. I wasn't sure if Mark was going to do it, but... Um, It was on the 100th episode of Grey's Anatomy, which was nine years ago. Uh, And so it's been a favorite of mine mine since then. Um, But before we we totally start this uh, dialogue, I wanted to kind of walk you all through the um, sort of what I was studying this week as I was preparing to think about stone and um, to talk to you all about stone. So I was researching some of the history um, of the role that stone has played in Christian thought and practice in particular. Um, And so I I found out that in 1667, Nicholas Steno, a Lutheran Danish scientist who would later go on to be a Catholic bishop, um, he dissected the head of a dog shark. Um, And when he dissected the shark's head, he noticed that the teeth of the shark were practically identical to these little rocks that people called tongue stones. Uh, And so in the short version of this story, Uh, is that after the the shark dissection, Christianity would really never be the same. And then the longer version of this story, uh, Steno started to wonder if these little tongue stones that children found in the dirt and that farmers dug out of the land, these sharp little triangular, uh, triangular shaped rocks, that they might actually be shark's teeth. 
But then the question inevitably became, if these tongue stones really are shark's teeth, how did they end up on the land? How did they end up buried deep in the ground? And shouldn't they be under the water? So Steno, being a good scientist, makes a hypothesis, and he hypothesizes that everything was once underwater, the whole world. But then the water receded, and as the water receded, a layer of minerals and stone and sand and perhaps even shark teeth got left behind behind and formed a hard, solid layer. layer. And so about 200 years later, we will uh, formally name this process sedimentation. But in 1667, this is a really radical um, and unsubstantiated claim. So Steno writes a dissertation on this hypothesis, and eventually, down the line, it will destabilize Christianity. In particular, it will destabilize the literal reading of the creation story. However, Steno himself does not do this destabilizing work, in part because he is contextualized um, in the Usher chronology. So a few years before Steno dissects the shark, the head bishop of Ireland, Bishop James Usher, wrote a Christian chronology of the world, and he calculated the start date of the world at around 9 a.m. on October 23rd, 4004 B.C., and he thought, he thought that there was a really seamless coordination between the way the Bible spoke about time and the way that we then experience time. Um, and so I think he, get, he, gets, a, he gets a bad rap. Uh, but he, was, he wasn't the only person uh, making these chronologies. Uh, Martin Luther was, was making these chronologies as well. Um, but so Steno, the, the scientist, wanting to uphold the Bible and uphold the Usher chronology... Um, said that his geological discoveries were true because of the flood narrative. Um, So that's how the shark teeth must have gotten on the dry land. But still, he set in motion what a Scottish scientist named James Hutton will pick up about 100 years later. And Hutton is known as the father of modern geology. Um, And Hutton espoused what we now know as the rock cycle, but he called it the theory of Earth in 1785. And he proposed that the generation of rock was driven by subterranean heat, which we now know to be correct. Um, And he hypothesized that as the heat reached the surface and eroded, which formed soil, a new visible layer would emerge. And so he thought that by counting the layers, sort of like how we count uh, the rings of a tree, we could figure out how old the earth might be. And so what he studied, though, when he found, when he found, uh, when when he studied according to his hypothesis, he found what later became called the abyss of time, and deep time or geological time. He found a world that must be millions, if not billions of years old, and couldn't possibly just be a few thousand years old. So it led to a view of history with no beginning and no end. And for the Christian community in particular, it raised really serious questions about normative salvation history, um, which is to say that Jesus' time on earth looks really small when you look at rock formations. So these scientists knew, they knew that rock and that stone held answers to the questions of the world and by extension questions of our humanity, and they intuited that we are not only in relationship with stone, but that we are dependent on stone for our context and for our narrative. Or in other words, we need the rocks to teach us about our place in the world. And like, like any relationship, there are tensions and there are beauty. And in the case of Christianity's relationship to stone, I think it's really complicated, right? All of those, uh, those rocks that we learned about in the fourth grade, um, 
sedimentary and metamorphic and igneous. Ben had to remind us all of those. Um, these rocks, they qualitatively expanded and quantitatively normalized our human notion of time. And this overhauled, right, it overhauled our Christian belief system. Rocks started to ask questions of Christianity that Christianity could not ask for itself or was too scared to ask for itself. And so the discovery of geological time meant that rock and that earth could stand up for itself and say, you can't have a belief system of just sky and heaven. You have to have a belief system of the earth and of the rock too. And so it's had me thinking this week about what rocks do and how they function beyond their, um, their characteristics and their properties like hardness and color and texture and luster. Um, and to be honest, this week was a lot, um, I don't want to say less fun, but it was harder for me than, than when we talked about bread a few weeks ago. Um, I see bread a lot, right? I touch bread a lot. I have a lot of opinions on bread and what bread pairs well with. Um, and I don't have as many opinions or life experiences having to do with rocks. I'm not especially outdoorsy. And so I was reading some um, some John Muir, the, uh, the nature essayist, and I thought, oh, that is so, that's so nice. Nature is really lovely when it is on, uh, when it's in an essay. I really enjoy it. Um, and so I wanted to toss this back to you. I'm hoping you all have some stronger opinions on rocks. Maybe we have a rock climber in the room. Uh, but I wanted to toss this back to you all for a couple of thoughts. Um, What do you think about rock or stone? I'm sort of using those words interchangeably. Um, What do they make you think about? So I was thinking about this uh, yesterday, how my yard is really dry and dying right now. Um, And I grew up in Texas, and I was thinking back to, well, our yard's always dry and dying in Texas as well. And I have this distinct memory um, growing up when I was in high school, my dad decided that he really wanted to make part of our yard nice, and that required getting some irrigation in place. So we needed to dig down and build uh, you know, a sprinkler system under the ground. And about four inches underneath the soil, it was just rock. Which then he decided that we needed to break the rock and build a pathway through the rock to lay this <laughs> irrigation system, as well as dig up all the rock out of the yard and take it out of the yard. Um, so I... I I remember hating rock. Rock was this thing that was, it felt, um, it felt like punishment. It was yeah. like wake up and give you a pickaxe and say, we're breaking rock today. Um, and he called it character building. Um, so rock, rock was a very, uh, when I was in high school, just like, oh, I hate rock. Because um, it, was, it was always in the way and made things not grow well in our area. Hmm. So rock is something that, you had to manipulate yep. to build your character. <laughs> rock is something that impeded maybe your dad's notion of a beautiful yard in some way, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, when I was little, I used to go to Grandfather Mountain and mine for gemstones. Oh, cool. And so like, I like rocks. <laughs> yeah. So, like, so gemstones, yeah. I, I, I went to um, Everyday Magic downtown this week. Um, and I contemplated buying a really overpriced <laughs> gemstone from them. I was like, it's, it's in the spirit of preparation. <laughs> I didn't. I got a rock from my driveway. <laughs> I always think of my mother. Um, whenever we would walk like around our neighborhood, um, she had two comments about houses. One was for paint. If it was a color she didn't like, she would say, oh, I bet they got a really good deal on that paint. <laughs> 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 
The second was always when we passed stone houses, and she would say, oh, they must be, they must do very well in life, because stone homes, she found them so rare, right? Or kind of, especially where I grew up, it was more of a rare year, this special stone and rock has specialty. Um, but yeah, so when I still see stone houses, I think, oh, they must do well in life. <laughs> so stone almost is like a status symbol, yeah. sort of? Yeah. Um, I think I think what struck me most when I was studying this history um, is that there's a relationship between rock and time that I um, I think sort of was vaguely familiar of, but didn't realize how much um, it has shaped sort of the brand of Christianity that I grew up in. Um, and I think the way that it forced us and forced Christianity to grapple with the earth in a new way. Um, I think coming from the tradition which um, did not sort of uphold a literal reading of the creation story, I think it quite lovely or beautifully asked us to ground our faith, um, right? And so like on some level, rocks are, are just hard slabs of earth that we build things on and that we get out of the way, but rocks also prove to us that the earth um, could speak for itself, right? That it could teach us about its own history. Um, and so I thought it was really beautiful to think of rock as record and rock as memory or rock as storyteller even, rock as this sort of proto-language. Um, so the lithosphere um, is the outermost portion of the Earth's crust. Um, it's rock and it's the thing we do our living on. It is, um, I think, a pretty enduring and trustworthy layer for the most part. It's the quite literal foundation of our civilizations and Indeed, it was also the stuff of which civilizations were made. The Stone Age, for example, um, was a time when humanity figured out how to manipulate stone um, and turn it into human flourishing, right? Because it, it allowed us to turn it into weapons and tools and allowed us to um, become people of agriculture and not people who went out and gathered and hunted. Um, and so stone in that way, I think quite literally made us very um, productive and efficient people, right? And yet, Will Durant, an American philosopher and historian, and the author of the 11-volume Story of Civilization, he writes of geological phenomenon, civilization exists by geological consent, subject to change without notice. And so we know that our relationship to stone is not symbiotic, right? We depend on, on stone, or we're sort of at the mercy of stone, um, Rocks don't owe us anything. And we know um, that earthquakes or volcanic eruptions or tsunamis created when tectonic plates of the lithosphere shift. It reminds us that stone can destroy a civilization far more quickly than it builds one up. Uh, or to say all of this maybe another way, or to at least say it biblically, um, stones can sing out God's praise, right? And yet we also throw them at each other. Um, God is the rock of ages, and yet we forget this fact, I think, as we, we trample over it. Um, so would someone read our Genesis text? Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. 
He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set upon the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. Thanks, Emily. I think this text is is really, really fascinating, very interesting. This is one of the texts that my my Hebrew class a year ago, we spent a whole semester translating it. So I feel like I, I sort of understand this passage well at the grammatical level. But in another sense, it totally mystifies me that Jacob uses a stone as a pillow and then takes his pillow stone and pours oil on it to make a pillar. And while I think that this passage is usually more read for the content of the dream, um, how do you see the stone functioning here? How, what does it say about humanity's, humanity's relationship to stone or rock? Stone as um, yeah, something that we invest 
a memory in or that we we have the power to make holy or consecrate in some way, something like that. And I don't think there's a pretty rock. So, yeah. like, you know, we can put, you know, people do that to gemstones all the time. But, yeah. you know, I picture this as kind of a, you know, yay so big, normal mm-hmm. rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I guess makes it just as strange that we do that to gemstones. Like, yeah. No, for sure. Stuff. I think this, this made me think a little bit of, like, gravestones, sort of. Like a... Something that we, um, a stone that we assign meaning to and memorial to memorialize something, I guess, something like that. Yeah. Um, um, I just think stones, you kind of can count on them to last for a really long time. So you're probably pretty sure it's going to be there when it gets back. (laughs) It's a stone as um, something with meaning in and of itself because it is an enduring, um, an enduring thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? People pay lots of money to get massages on stones. Mm, yeah. So they can't be comfortable. Those are the stones I prefer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he had some like knots in his neck or something. Yeah. Small. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I like I like that interpretation. Mm-hmm. It makes me think about when you're when you're out um, backpacking or hiking, people will take stones and they'll use them as markers to show the way in a trail or current. And so oftentimes when you're hiking and looking for something, you look for that. Is this mark of a place? And the stones are something that you know is going to be there. It's going to stay there. It's not piling up pine cones that can get washed away. It's something that has that weight and, and stature. Um, so it, it kind of just reminds me of that as he's, he's taking it and saying, all right, I need to mark this place. This is something I can, I can use for that. Well, then and is maybe something that someone else might need in the future. I don't, I've read about that in Wild. I have to tell it myself. But is it, so are they usually smaller rocks, sort of? You'll take a few rocks and pile it up okay. and try to make a kind of a, hey, this is the right way that you're okay. on. This is the right path. Oh, yeah, you were telling me about that, but you didn't know what the meaning was. <laughs> okay. There you go. But yeah, but so it would be primarily for, I guess, for you finding your way back and then also for, for someone people. else finding it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I love that. Yeah camaraderie in the hiking trails. I like that. <laughs> what else? Any other thoughts? Well, I have a five-year-old grandson who's pretty short, and he is, just loves rocks. Mm-hmm. So everywhere we go, he's got a pocket full, and he, he'll take the most ordinary-looking rock, and he'll go, Grandma, just look at this. This is just absolutely beautiful. Look how smooth it is. But it makes me aware that um, rocks are different things in different he yeah. sees it as, you know, something really unique or beautiful. I see it as just a piece of rock, you know. But I, I'm just thinking about that mm-hmm. when we're talking that it can mean different things to different people. The same rock. And that to your grandson, it seems to be a really beloved thing. Yes. But it's yeah, something that he feels perhaps intimate with, or that he assigns a lot of meaning to it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I think. Um, I think that's sort of like what you're saying, Joy. I think this passage demonstrates um, sort of at a a very literal level um, a healthier and more intimate relationship with stone, right? That it was a time when we relied on stone, apparently for some sort of comfort, right? But and also to to mark where we were going and um, to assign meaning to a geographical location. Um, Something more, I guess, that I would think of like like the Stone Age, when we were really reliant on on stone. 
Um, in college, I took an Etruscan art class, so we were studying art from roughly the 8th, 8th to the 5th centuries. Um, and almost all of the art that we were studying was stone, right? It, um, obviously, sort of sculptures and busts were, were marble um, and other stones, but stone was also the medium um, on which most of the paintings happened, or at least um, those are the only paintings that survived, right, for us to then study. Um, and I think that this suggests that from the beginning of our time, we have understood the durability of stone. Um, I think that the Etruscans knew that stone would preserve their stories, and I like to think that they would be really comforted in knowing that stone allows their culture to, to live on. Um, and I think, sort of in the, in the broader history of art, um, we see artists continually turning back to stone, um, either quite literally or as a motif in their art, when culture feels inhospitable. Um, so... In the aftermath of World War I, in 1921, I think it was, Pablo Picasso painted um, one of my favorite paintings. It's called Three Women at the Well. And the painting depicts these three massive, sturdy women that sort of look like they are emerging out of a rock formation. Um, and they, they look like sort of three stone sculptures. Um, they, they look quite literally like they are of the earth. They're sort of um, angular, and they look like they were chiseled out, and they're like a relief of the, of the stone. Um, and they're exaggerated, and they're statuesque, and they look sort of eternal. And I, Picasso said that after seeing all of the destruction wrought by metal um, during the war, he wanted to return to stone. So I think, or I wonder, like Jacob... Um, if he was using stone like a pillow, using it for comfort and to rest his head on something everlasting. Um, and while today I think we are still intimately reliant on stone, I think that that reliance manifests in more industrial ways. Um, coal mining and fracking and oil drilling and diamond mining, for example. It seems that we need and rely on our ability to manipulate stone in such a different way than Jacob did, or then, um, you know, the, the people of the Stone Age, and I know I come back to them, but the stone is in the title. Um, and so fracking in particular, I think, require, it requires um, that we fracture the shale of the earth, the, sort of the stone layer, um, to extract nat natural gas, right? And it um, obviously pollutes the water, and it um, has a lot of dangerous chemicals in it that we're not really sure what they do. Um, but the, the act of fracturing the Earth's bedrock can be so disruptive that it yields earthquakes. I think it was in Oklahoma or Kansas where they, um, they did a study and they had 400 more earthquakes uh, after they, the year after they started fracking than the year before. Um, and so I think how we relate to rocks, how we relate to the Earth, which is more broadly as a massive rock, is changing. And I, I don't think... I don't think we view stone as something eternal. Um, I think we, we tend to break it down and profit from it. And so for all the ways that we are complicit in breaking down rock, um, I have to still think that we know stone has a higher purpose than that, right? That stones are, are sort of the oldest, a thing is not the right word, but the oldest sort of geographical uh, thing on earth, right? They're the earth itself, really. Um, 
It's a storyteller. Rock has kept the fossils for us. Um, and they've helped us to know our place as a human race and how small and how young we are. Um, I think Rock remembers what we cannot and what we know we will surely forget. So would someone read the John text now? Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and broke with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Thank you. So in the first text, we saw one human being's intimate relationship to stone um, in both a created and an ecological state. And in this text, um, what do y'all notice about stone? How, does it, how is it playing out here? how much society has changed in this time. We're not um, in like, the wilderness anymore. Mm-hmm. Or maybe people are using stones for pillows in their houses, but they probably look a little nicer. And there's a temple, and um, it's like maybe society has become more advanced, and we're also... Um, using the same tools to execute people. Um, yeah, it shows how, how um, I don't want to say disconnect, but yeah, some, some evolution away from mm-hmm. being with the rock, um, more using it and seeing the really fantastic results of that, but also very scary results of that, yeah. and um, how, how easy it is to um, kill someone with mm-hmm. the very tools that you've built your society with. So um, that stone is um, being instrumentalized, but in a really, to destructive ends. Yeah, yeah. these people's, this, the people's relationship with stone has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, from this Hebrew Bible text to the New Testament and um, brings it brings up it, it makes it interesting again how much our relationship to stone mm-hmm. has changed like people's relationship to stone has always been changing and we keep making 
having more advanced societies and finding ways to kill each other with those same tools. Yeah. takes it back to, oh, so you're going to throw rocks at her and kill her, right? Mm -hmm. So who's going to do that first? Yeah. Um, stone, yeah. Yeah, so the way that rocks are, oh, that's really interesting. So, so the way that... Yes. Uh, stone being, like, it's a verb. Yeah. Like they, they've taken, mm -hmm. taken it out of, like, being a thing and it's become an action, which kind of covers up some of the violence yeah. underlying... Mm -hmm. So stone as um, maybe a, a coded way to talk about gender almost, right? Like sort of saying, I don't know, acknowledging the, the fact that she's a woman without... Or but stone is power and it's violence. Mm. Okay. And it's wielded by the men yeah. against the woman mm -hmm. for the act of men. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And Jesus really trying to take all that apart. Mm -hmm. So I was like going to say this because I always get caught up on the like what did Jesus write in the dust kind of thing <laughs> uh, but I feel like it relates to what Susan was saying like assume, I don't know if what Jesus wrote in the dust mattered or if it changed their minds or what it was but the dust is probably also stone yeah, right and it's yeah. the temporary like transient mm -hmm. not like wielded by man kind of powerful stone that perhaps is what mattered more in the story. Or maybe it didn't. Yeah, no, Emily, that's my next point. Okay. Is that, that's so perfect. Um, I, think that, I think that Jesus recognizes, right, the power of, of stone. Um, 
he names the tangible way that stone can be the undoing of his society, and that has gendered connotations as well. Um, so the way that stone is being used sort of like an, like an earthquake here, right, to destroy. Um, but I think it's so poignant and apt that after the scribes asked Jesus that question that Moses says we have to do this, what do you say? Um, that Jesus touches the ground, that he touches the lithosphere, um, and writes something on it before before giving his answer. So obviously we don't know what, what he wrote, um, but I think the, the choreography of that moment is so significant that stone is what we live on, stone is what we write our stories on, stone is not what we throw at each other. Um, and I think that seems so elementary, right? But um, I think the, the, that Jesus does this by touching the ground is, is sort of what makes this such a significant thing. Like Molly said, reminding them that stone is um, a nobler thing than this, that stone has a, has a, has a more important purpose than, than killing people. Um, so how does, um, how does the reality of stone change our thinking about the world? How, how does stone... Um, Maybe these are two separate questions. You can answer whatever you want. Um, but how do they shape our lives of faith? Um, and how do we hold the tension of stone together that we've talked about a little bit tonight? That it's the oldest part of our world, that it's sort of the best, I think, the best pedagogical tool we have for comprehending the vastness of time. And um, God is sort of the rock of ages. Um, while it is also an element that we harm and that we use for harm. So how do we how do we hold those together? How do we how did that how does how could that change our thinking of the world around us or um, our lives of faith? So I'm thinking maybe that it matters how we use things. Um, because you're talking, we've been talking a lot about like these kind of ways of using stones for comfort, but also as weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's any like old school Ani DeFranco fans in the room, but I want to quote her often. So <laughs> I just thought of this line that in one of the songs, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. Mm-hmm. So I just was kind of thinking about that and like that it's not the stone itself that is the problem in the stoning story, that it's really the use of that. It reminds me, does anyone watch The Handmaid's Tale? Fewer people than I thought. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so I think think though in in the Hulu version, there's a a scene that's not in the book, I think, Um, but it's a stoning scene, and they're they're about to, sorry, these are the spoilers. Um, (laughs) It's the last episode. Of the, of the season, but they, um, they're, the handmaids are all in a circle and they're being asked to stone their, their fellow handmaid for endangering the life of a child, and, um, and they've carried out these stonings before, right? They, they've done it before, um, but something about this feels particularly wrong or particularly unsettling and disgusting, and uh, the stone, she, one of the handmaids, the main character, she drops it, and the stone becomes a symbol of resistance, um, and I think that's, is that sort of what you're getting at? That stones are, it's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what we, what we assign to it. Yeah. Hmm. 
seriously the world that we are yeah yeah yeah, and use it and be careful about how we how we use those things any final thoughts um, yeah i guess i'm thinking about the series as a, as a whole um in a similar way and i think a year ago i um was very estranged from christianity at that point like i haven't been on enough um, but I, I read some really hopeful accounts of um, churches, faith communities that have um, are, are practicing something I think officially called watershed activism hmm. um, or watershed discipleship. I'm sorry, um, and I found it really encouraging. Like, oh, this is this is like I this 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 would draw me in. Um, this is what this is like an amazing thing that people of faith can do together, that the communities can do together. Um, and it's working with um, your watershed. And I think what's so fascinating about it is it um, dirt and water and stone are all there. You can't have a watershed without those things. And it roots a kind of um, activism locally reframes it as being discipleship, so it's so community-oriented that way, but everything when you're doing that kind of local discipleship work, but when you're working with the watershed, it touches everything. Um, Maybe without some of the burnout that comes with when you're only thinking about large-scale issues. Uh, And I I found that really hopeful, but not really sure how to enact that in my day-to-day life, which I think is why coming back to church made a lot of sense. Like, oh, people come together, there's suddenly power that wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just something I've been thinking about a lot in this yeah. series. Like, oh, there's like a there's like a, a roadmap for this. People do this. Mm-hmm. Like, um, all over the country and the world, really. Um, in the midst of their day-to-day busy, go-to-work, yeah. take care of their kids' lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So, so, like, so paying attention to, to, to the things we've been talking about this summer. Um, as a group. Yeah, in, 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 in corporate spaces. Yeah, mm-hmm. in a corporate fashion. Yeah. As a way of, um, yeah, I love, the, I love that it's as a way of being a disciple and something that can shape the content of our faith. Mm-hmm. It seems like if we pay attention, if we're better, if we give more attention to it, if we're better mm-hmm. at that task. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. 
Well, thank you all so much for, for sharing your thoughts and your stories with me. Um, I wanted to close briefly with um, a reading from Mary Oliver's Blue Horse, a poem entitled Just Stones Feel. Um, and I think the poem speaks to the fact that stones have life and provide a foundation that we build our lives on and um, they are not inanimate. And it reminds me that stones know our stories better than we might and that we need to, to honor that and to care for that, um, to gather it and bring it back, as Mary Oliver says. Do stones feel? Do they love their life? Or does their patience drown out everything else? When I walk on the beach, I gather a few stones, white ones, dark ones, the multiple colors. Don't worry, I say, I'll bring you back, and I do. Is the tree as it rises delighted with its many branches, each one like a poem? Are the clouds glad to unburden their bundles of rain? Most of the world says, no, no, it's not possible. I refuse to think to such a conclusion. Too terrible would it be to be wrong. Amen. So I have a couple of thoughts with rock and stone. And and our next song talks about sort of the memory of stone. But I also think, I mean, I I think of rock as sort of a matter of life and death. Um, I've I've been uh, fortunate to, to... spend a bit of time in, in two of the most, uh, two of the youngest land masses in the world, uh, which are Hawaii and Iceland, um, are two of the youngest because there are active volcanoes there. And I, I think in both of those, in both of those environments, both of those land masses and in the people groups that live there, um, there, there is this sense if you are, if you are in a boat in the water, um, rock is life to you because there's actually hope that you can um, stop rowing or that you can stop depending on the wind to get you somewhere and you can just stop and then you can start planting things and building things and, and spreading and building life and, and um, building a civilization. So it, it, I think about that and I think about the way that rocks then tell a story of civilization, of people, um, and in the case of this next song, um, the ways that rock or stone in this case I think of it as sheetrock is saying if these walls could speak talking about a home um, what stories would would the rocks around us tell uh, if they were telling stories about the people who live around them or in them so this is a beautiful song Uh, Jimmy Webb wrote it Amy Grant did it so I know Molly loves this one because she's a big Amy fan Uh, (laughs) I almost asked you to sing this one in fact Molly but then Anyway, so I, Jimmy Webb's a great songwriter. This is kind of a, a songwriter's song. Um, he's one of these writers who other songwriters respect a great deal. Um, great song. Oh. 
songs where there's just one line that mentions stone, but what I really dig about it is this concept, we didn't really, nobody brought it up tonight, we didn't really talk about this tonight, but, um, you know, it's mentioned several times in scripture, this idea of of taking a heart of stone and making it into a heart of flesh, Um, something about 
this fossilized or ossified thing and, and trying to make it real and beating and feeling uh, and hoping and believing again. And so for our song of absolution, I thought uh, this song by Rich Mullins would be, would be a nice one. Thanks so much, Mark, um, Lydia, and Rudy, for, and all of you for our great um, dialogue and thoughts around stone. Um, so I have been singing uh, If These Walls Could Speak for 13 years now. Um, it's kind of dorky, but it's true. Um, at, every year at Volunteer Girl State, which some of you know that I go back for. And so we sing If These Walls Could Speak with Amy Grant, like the music track on in the background, like straight up from the 80s. Like, it's still a cassette tape. I mean, like, so, but we, so at the end of the week, at the end of Girl State, all these women, all of the counselors and staff of Girl State um, get up on the stage, and we sing this song. And for 13 years in my life, that week and singing of that song has been a time and a place for me of remembrance to remember who I am and who I'm called to be in the world. And I think that that, whenever Rhody and I were talking about stone this week and rock, 
and how rock tells time and how rock holds story and stone. Um, it reminds us what our place in this world really is, right? Stone reminds us who we are to be, who we are and who we are to be, right? Stone can easily, and we can easily, like we talked about, right, like use stone for horrible things, but if held another way, or if thought of in another way, or if stacked upon when hiking, stone can really point us toward directions of love and light. And it's an everyday, ordinary object that we have all around us that reminds us of who we are. And I just think that that's beautiful. And I think that that's why the table, our open table, is so damn important. (laughs) Because it's everyday, ordinary objects, bread and wine, that Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember who I am, and when you eat of it, remember who you were called to be. Just bread and just wine. The table for me is like sitting on a stage in in Nashville, Tennessee every year, remembering who I am and who I am in relationship to you and you and you and those people that I'm going to encounter and interact with day in and day out and maybe don't even know yet. And that's why I love in Emmaus Way we practice the open table week after week because we constantly need that remembrance. We need to break bread and pour wine or juice for one another and remember whose we are and who we are as we leave this place. So come to the table at Emmaus Way. Our table is very open. All are welcome. At Emmaus Way, we serve one another. So we break bread for one another or hand a gluten-free cracker for one another, pour wine or juice for one another. Say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, or perhaps the love of God for you, the peace of God for you. And as we do it, may we remember and remember well. Let us come to the table.